Well, I would like us to spend a few moments tonight, a few moments of your time, further contemplating the events that we remember this Friday evening, Good Friday as it's often referred to. And I'd like to turn your attention to a gospel account of what took place on a hill called Golgotha some 2,000 years ago. If, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel in the 27th chapter. If you're a guest with us and you'd like to follow along in a Bible, you can do so on your phone if you have it there perhaps, or there might be a black Bible near you, and you could simply turn to page 783, and you would be right where you need to be. You know, when it comes to the details of the form of death that Jesus endured, the New Testament is notably silent as far as the details. For instance, Matthew's gospel, we'll read in a minute, in Matthew 27, just says, and when they crucified him. Mark's gospel says it was the third hour when they crucified him. Luke and John say there, speaking of Golgotha, they crucified him. Now, the audience who received the gospels, they didn't need any explanation about crucifixion because they were all aware of what that meant. It was one of the most vicious kinds of deaths a human being could endure. It was meant for the vilest of criminals. We know of crucifixion because of what we read in history, but the gospel writers did not need to give it in detail. However, the gospel writers do focus on what happened around this crucifixion. The crucifixion was intended to be a long-duration event. We would tend to think that such a nailing of somebody to a wooden beam would take their life quickly, but that was not the intent at all. It was actually meant to prolong a person's death, that they might become a spectacle. It was a deterrent, as it were. And so it's during those hours that Jesus hung on the cross that the gospel writers fill in the scene for us and tell us what took place around those certain times, and the gospel writers mark out these times. Tonight, I want to look with you at the crucifixion of Christ, and in particular tonight, I want us to note the scenes surrounding the death of Christ. And what Matthew does for us in his gospel in the 27th chapter, beginning in verse 45, he tells us the scene as Jesus was dying Beginning in verse 45 and running all the way down to the end of verse 50, he says these are things that were happening as Jesus' life was ebbing away, as it were. And then in verse 50, at the end, it says he yielded up his spirit. And so beginning in verse 51 then, Matthew writes and records certain things that happened at the very moment that Jesus died. The very time that he yielded up his spirit, there were certain things that took place that were significant. And then beginning in verse 57, Matthew continues through the end of the chapter and he tells us these are things that happened after Jesus died. So you can see he organizes his material around what happened as Jesus was dying, 
the very moment he died, and then after he died. I'd like to take it in that sequence tonight as we examine together these scenes surrounding the death of Christ. And let's pray together and ask God to help us see what's here before we look into his word more closely. Lord, would you give us your mind this evening as we examine together these events that took place so many years ago and yet carry profound significance today. And help us to see clearly what it is you've intended by your spirit to bring about by these preserved words for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to note, first of all, the scene as Jesus died. If you have your Bible open, we read in verse 45 of the 27th chapter of Matthew. Now from the sixth hour, that would have been 12 noon our time, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, or what would be 3 p.m. As Jesus was dying, the sun was darkened. What does that mean? What would that have looked like? Well, here's an image for you. I'm, I'm quite certain it didn't look like this, but it's the best I could do for us tonight, because this is a an eclipse, a solar eclipse. It was impossible that a solar eclipse would have happened at this time because this was during Passover. Passover is at a time of full moon, which means it would be impossible for a solar eclipse to take place. But the Bible does say that the earth was dark for three hours. That actually occurred in New England on May 19th in 1780. It was during that year that there was an unusual darkening of the daytime over the New England states and parts of Canada. So much so that representatives in the House in Connecticut actually wanted to postpone the day's proceedings because they feared judgment was coming. Said that they had to light candles at noonday so that they had light to see by. One representative in particular said, I know not whether judgment is coming, but whether it's coming or not, I want to be found doing my duty. Bring the books. Nevertheless, we're told that at this day, the day that Jesus died, there was a darkness for three hours. Why darkness? Like many of those in New England in 1780, darkness is associated with judgment. The Scripture makes this connection. Several places in the Scripture, in Isaiah 5, in Isaiah 13, and Joel 3, we're told that the judgment of God is associated with a darkness. Judgment of God falling upon sin. And this indeed is what Matthew is portraying, is what was intended to be portrayed on the day that Jesus died, that darkness means there was a judgment that was taking place. Something, someone, was being condemned, pronounced guilty, as it were. That's why Isaac Watts wrote in his famous hymn, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in 
when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. I find it interesting that we read in the Bible in the Old Testament book of Exodus during a familiar account when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, out of slavery. They were driven out of Egypt, as it were, after God unveiled ten plagues upon that nation of Egypt. The ninth of those plagues was darkness over all the land. The judgment of God was coming to bear. The last of those plagues was the death of the firstborn. On Calvary, the darkness demonstrated the judgment of God that was coming, and the firstborn would be slain. This was the judgment that was taking place when Jesus gave up his life on Calvary. The sun was darkened. And look at verse 46. Jesus was forsaken. In verse 46, we read about the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken God. There is indeed a mystery here. Jesus himself being God in the flesh, and yet at this moment, this is a genuine cry of dereliction. Forsaken by God. What was taking place in those three hours of darkness in which Jesus would finally break the eerie silence with this cry. This was not a disillusionment on Jesus' part. It was a genuine abandonment by God. And yet, how could God forsake His only Son, whom He publicly had professed to be one in whom He was well pleased? How is that possible? Well, it was none less than the holiness of Almighty God that caused him to forsake his only son, to turn his back on his son. You say, that sounds so harsh. Well, it tells us exactly what was taking place when Jesus was on the cross. And what was that? Well, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, had spoken of this earlier. In John's gospel, in the first chapter of the 29th verse, we read that the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb in Hebrew mindset was that sacrificial lamb. It was that one that would stand in the place for me to bear my sin. And John says, behold, here comes one, a human being who is the lamb of God, God's own chosen lamb who would take away or bear away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul makes this statement concerning Jesus and his death. In 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 21, he says, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And when we're told that Jesus was forsaken by God, it's because Jesus became sin for us. And God was bringing judgment upon our sin where God turned his back on the sin bearer, demonstrating his right and just wrath against sin. Paul would later say in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That Jesus bore our curse, he bore our sin in his body on Calvary, and he was forsaken by God, a just penalty that you and I deserved. But he stood in our place. And this was a true separation from God. It was prophesied earlier in Isaiah's 53rd chapter and verse 6, where Isaiah says, all we are like sheep. And we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by God. And in that abandonment, he experienced a flame hotter than any hell. People alive today who walk the face of this earth, even those that turn their back on the God of heaven, can never exclaim, I'm forsaken by God. Because God provides for his creatures every single day and gives us life every single day. This was the only living man who ever walked the face of the earth that could truly say, I am forsaken by God. Why? Because he bore our sin. He took our punishment. No grace was extended to him, no favor shown to him, no comfort administered to him, no concessions made for him. For the sake of his own holiness and justice, God was willing to reject his own son who bore our sin in his body on a cross. Noted preacher G. Campbell Morgan said this, Sin in its beginning was rebellion against God. Sin in its harvest is to be God abandoned. Man sinned when he dethroned God and enthroned himself, and he reaps the utter harvest of his sin when he has lost God altogether for eternity. Jesus Christ experienced that abandonment so that you wouldn't have to. The third thing that we noted that happened while Jesus was dying, the sun was darkened, he himself was forsaken, and according to verse 50, Jesus' life was given. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, yielding up your spirit is a somewhat strange way to speak of death. We think of the last breath, the last gasp, the last opportunity. 
And here we're told that when it came to Jesus Christ, he yielded up his life. Nobody took it from him. He laid it down. In fact, Jesus had spoken of this earlier. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And Here, as Jesus is dying, we see this very fact fulfilled, that nobody takes Jesus' life from him. He willingly voluntarily lays it down. The price has been paid. Therefore, he gives up his life in exchange for ours. These are the scenes that surround the death of Jesus as he was dying. And the significance in these scenes demonstrate this, that Jesus' death was a judgment. The sky was dark. It was a judgment upon sin, your sin and my sin. Jesus was forsaken by God, enduring justice for sin. And in finality, Jesus willingly offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Jesus endured the darkness of hell for us. There was a man by the name of Raymond Colby. Colby was a native of Poland. He lived in Poland in 1939. He was there when the Nazis invaded Poland and took over that nation. He didn't uh, cooperate with the Nazis and what they wanted him to do, and therefore he was arrested. He's an enemy of the state. And he was taken to a place called Auschwitz, which you've no doubtedly heard of. In July of 1941, ten prisoners had succeeded in escaping from Auschwitz. And in order to make a demonstration to the remaining prisoners that they should not try the same thing, they decided that they would choose ten of those prisoners. They would put them in an underground bunker and they would be starved to death as a demonstration to not try to escape. And so they began their selections. One here, one here. We'll take you, and we'll take you, and we'll take you. Until finally one man was chosen by the name of Francis Gowinzak. He was chosen, and as he was chosen, he cried out to the guards, and he said, please spare me. I have a wife. I have children. What will their life be like without their father? It was at that moment that Raymond Colby stepped forward, not being married and not having children. He said, please, let this man go. I'll take his place. And to his surprise, perhaps, the guards agreed. And Raymond went to that underground bunker with those other men, and there he gave his life, and he died that Francis might live. Francis was released, he was reunited with his family when the Allies liberated that country. Francis lived to the age of 95. He died in 1995. 
Francis every day said that he would speak in his mind of his savior, Raymond, who stepped forward and gave his life. That's a noble thing. You say that is a noble cause. That man's rightly to be appreciated. How much more the only perfect man who's ever walked the face of the earth, willing to lay down his life, not just for one of us, but for all of us. And not just to save us from a physical death, but to save us from an eternal separation from God. Jesus stepped in and took your place. Creation demonstrated it in its darkness. His cry confirmed it in his being forsaken. He laid down his life willingly that you and I might live. These are the scenes as Jesus was dying. But notice these scenes the moment that Jesus died. We continue in the text in verse 51. It tells us that several things happened when Jesus yielded up his spirit. Verse 51 we read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. and The earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain in the temple was torn. Now, what is that curtain? Well, here's an artist rendering. I'm certain it didn't look exactly like this, but this is an idea. It was a large curtain. Historians tell us that that curtain was actually quite thick. It was thick as the palm of your hand. We do know that the Old Testament tells us that that curtain had embroidered on it two cherubim. Cherubim are angels. They're associated with the presence of God, and they're actually guardians of the presence of God. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, an angel was stationed at the entrance to that place, guarding the presence of God. You had this curtain with these imposing figures of angels on it, and behind that curtain was a place called the Most Holy Place where one priest would go one time every year to meet with God. You don't just waltz in there. This curtain was a barrier. So one time each year, the priest could go in with the blood that was sacrificed at the altar and there make atonement for the sins of the people before God. But this curtain was a barrier to that. Only one man, one time per year. You don't just waltz into God's presence because we are guilty in the eyes of God. But when Jesus Christ, our sin bearer, the Lamb of God, the one that all of those other sacrifices were but mere pictures to his reality. When he died and gave up his spirit, that curtain was torn in two and thrown open, demonstrating nothing less but that the way to God had been made open. The only way to come into the presence of God is through Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Again, Isaiah had spoken of this in the 53rd chapter in verses 10 and 11. 
It says, yet it was the will of the Lord, that's God the Father, to crush him. That's the son. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus' life was given as an offering, a sacrifice for our guilt. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, that God would be satisfied with Jesus' payment. And by his knowledge, or by the knowledge, by knowing this righteous one, knowing Jesus the righteous one, my servant, it would make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities." We can be made right with God because Jesus bore our iniquities and paid the price for our sin so that now access to God is open to all through Jesus. This is why Jesus himself said in John 14 and verse 6, no one comes to the Father but by me. Access to God is possible for all. That was what is meant by this tearing of this temple curtain. But there's another event that took place. The curtain in the temple was torn at the moment that Jesus died, and the tombs were opened. Look at this in verse 52. We're told that the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is a a significant event that took place, and it's one that only Matthew records and one that people often stumble over. I mean, how is this possible, that Jesus died and these graves were opened, as it were? Don't think of graves in the ground. Think of like the tomb, the rock hewn garden tomb where Jesus was laid. It was opened and and people were coming out. Notice it says that this took place after Jesus' resurrection that they actually appeared. Taking the Bible at face value like we should, the account is this, is that these definitely were Old Testament saints, people who had looked forward to this day. They looked forward to the Lamb of God that would come and take away their sin. They knew that the sacrifice that they offered was not permanent. It would have to be done again and again. And they looked forward to the final sacrifice. Now when that final sacrifice was made through the blood of Jesus, you actually have a resurrection of Old Testament saints. Some, not all. They have resurrected bodies. But what is being demonstrated is this. The moment that Jesus dies... Life is granted to those who've been dead. This was the important event that would grant life, resurrection to others. His death was vital. The rending of the tombs is a powerful symbolism for victory over death, which Jesus achieved. Because of his passion, Michael Green says, the tomb has lost its terror and its finality. And because he lives, we too shall live. This was a foretaste of what would happen just three days after this event. The moment Jesus died, the tombs were opened, demonstrating his victory over death. 
Finally, you have this when Jesus died. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Centurion, who undoubtedly had seen many crucifixions in his day, had heard many fanciful things proclaimed by these criminals that were hung on these crosses, some, I'm sure, who had claimed to be a Messiah of one sort or another. And yet on this day, at this man's death, the death of Jesus, he says this was like no other. Truly, no one can deny what this man is the Son of God. And coming no less from the mouth of not a Jewish believer, but a Roman soldier. An indication of a harvest that would yet come of Gentile people. The significance displayed in the events at the moment of Jesus' death were this. Jesus' death provides access to God. And Jesus' substitutionary death makes way for life for us, eternal life with God. There's the final thing that we see in our text tonight, and we'll be done. There's the scene after Jesus' death. Beginning in verse 57, Matthew records these events. He says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. After Jesus' death, Jesus' body is buried by his friends. This has been depicted, uh, depicted in artwork uh, for centuries. There's someone's depiction of the event that probably didn't look like that too much, but it gives you an idea of Jesus' body in the hands of his friends as they take him down from the cross. No soldier would have helped them. That would have been their job. It says that Joseph wrapped the body in a linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb. It's interesting, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a wealthy man, obviously. He probably, up to this point, was a secret follower of Jesus. Maybe fearful and, and hiding back because he knew of the growing resentment toward Jesus and what it might cost him. Yet now at this point, at this time, when the crucifixion has happened and he's observed these things, he now overcomes his fear. He gladly receives the body of Jesus to be buried in his own tomb. I'm not sure if Joseph was aware of this, but we do know that God was aware this would happen because 800 years earlier, God had said this. They made his grave with the wicked. What does that mean? Well, when someone was crucified, you were a criminal. 
and you didn't deserve a, a, a kind burial or an honorable burial, and they had basically a criminal's grave. And they would take the bodies and just throw them in an unmarked grave and, and burn them or bury them or get rid of them. However, let, let the animals pluck them if they wanted. It was a, it was a dishonorable thing. Isaiah says 800 years before this event ever took place that they intended to make his grave with the wicked. He's crucified between two thieves. That was his lot. And yet, he was with a rich man in his death. Who was the rich man? It was Joseph. Did he know that? I don't know. But God did. And it played out exactly as God had intended. And although, although Jesus had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, he didn't deserve that grave with the wicked. And by God the Father allowing him to be buried in a rich man's tomb, it's as if God the Father, even at that very moment, is saying, he is not a criminal. This was the innocent son of God who was bearing the criminal's sins. If anything, we know this of what took place in Jesus' burial. It was a real death. You don't bury people who have swooned. You don't bury people who've gone unconscious. You bury people that have died. And they knew Jesus was dead. And they wrapped his body and put it in a tomb. But the interesting thing is this. After Jesus' death, his body was buried by his friends. And his body is guarded by his foes. Look at verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir... We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Fascinating to me that they feel it necessary to guard a dead man. They fear Jesus even after he died, giving credence to the fact that they themselves know this is no usual human being. There's a real concern here. However, in their unwitting security of this tomb of a dead man, the precautions of Jesus' enemies to ensure that he stays in the grave only bolster the fact that he came out. Because how in the world do you get by Roman guards to steal a body? And it was that God was just saying, I'm going to make it indisputable what's going to happen in three days.
These are the scenes that surround the death of Jesus Christ. Seen before he died, or as he was dying, demonstrating God's judgment upon sin and his own sacrifice, his own substitution for us. As he died, making clear that the way to God was made open through the veil and the proclamation of his true identity as the Son of God. And even after he died, his friends now taking his body and caring for it, and even his enemies doing all they can to ensure he stays in the grave. These are important events for us that we remember this time of year. They demonstrate significance of the death of Jesus Christ. I want to end with this tonight. Here's what we've looked at in Matthew's gospel. Jesus died as a substitute, being condemned for our sin to provide access to God and victory over death that would ultimately be proved by his own indisputable resurrection. You can see how these scenes emphasize this message. This is what God is demonstrating to us by explaining these details around the death of Jesus Christ. Now my question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Be careful how you answer. What is belief? What does it mean to believe that? Do you realize that this Sunday, there will be more people in this building than there are on any other Sunday? And that will be true of churches across our country, yea, around the world. Why? Well, it has something to do with a doctor I just spoke with this afternoon. I was in a hospital, and I was talking to this doctor, and he was talking about setting up physical therapy for someone. And he said, well, you know, it might not start Sunday because for some people, Sunday is a religious holiday. And I said, yes, I know. (laughs) But even on his mind, I don't know if this man's a believer or not, but he was aware that that there's this religious day coming on Sunday and some people really see that day as important. And he probably could even tell me that people talk about it a day of resurrection and and something that happened all these years ago where Jesus rose from the grave. And there's a lot of people that will come and attend churches on Sunday and will maybe sing songs and hear messages and they'll go out saying, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian I believe this, I've I've heard this, and they have an intellectual understanding of it. But that's not saving belief. Just because I can tell you the story and I can recite it to you in some fashion. What is saving belief? Let me illustrate it this way. Do you know who this man is? It's George Washington. How many of you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? How many of you believe that he was the general of the Continental Army? How many of you believe that he crossed the Delaware? Okay. You know, all these facts about George Washington. He's an American hero, rightfully so. 
I believe all these things about George Washington, but if tomorrow morning I got up and there was a news flash that said, guess what? George Washington never lived. Somebody made it up. It's nothing but a bunch of stories and lies. I would be shocked, as would you. But guess what? It wouldn't have any bearing on my eternal security with God. You know why? Because I believe in all the facts about George Washington, but I'm not trusting him for anything. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, all those facts are true. And my very life depends on it. Because I am fully trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the substitute for my sin before God. Do you believe that? Do you believe? Good Friday is only good because Sunday is coming. And Jesus rose from the grave to demonstrate that what happened on Good Friday was accepted by the Father, his true sacrifice. But it doesn't mean that everybody's sins are forgiven. It's only for people who trust, rely upon Jesus. Not your own good works, not your own clean record, not anything that you have done, but that Jesus has done it all and he's paid it all for me. Do you believe that? If so, Jesus said this in John chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And that's Jesus' word to you. Have you believed? You could believe right now. Bible says in John 10, 9 and 10, if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. For with the mouth one confesses unto God and with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's that reliance, that trust in him. You could call upon the name of the Lord right now and be saved. If you would do that, I'd like to hear about it. And I wish you would share that with me. If you have more questions about that and you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you further about it. But it is the reason that Jesus died for us. And it's what he wants you to know. Let's bow our heads together.